12, we are going to be looking at verses 10 through 20 together tonight. And I want us to read just Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. And so when you find that, I ask you to stand in reverence as we read God's word together. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Let's pray. Father God, we come tonight with humility before Your holy Word. A Word, Lord, that You tell us is not like any other book, not like any other Word that we could ever come into contact with, but Lord, Your Word is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. Your Word, Lord, always accomplishes the purpose for which You send it out. And we come tonight acknowledging that You are about to send it out through the preaching of Your Word. And we ask You to accomplish Your purposes in our lives. We ask You to show us ways that we are not living in obedience to Your Word. We ask You to show us blind spots in our hearts and our approach to life, the way we think about the world, the way we think about You, the way we think about other people. Lord, we simply ask You to examine us, show us where we are wrong, and point us to our perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in His name. Amen. You may be seated. George C. Wallace, governor of the greatest state in the United States, the great state of Alabama. Kentucky's a close second. But he was governor of the great state of Alabama from 1963 through 1967, and then again from 1971 through 1979, and then again from 1983 through 1987. As a son of the great state of Alabama, the name Wallace was one of those names that I simply could not escape. It was everywhere. There are Wallace streets and Wallace buildings. The community college that I attended for two years is named George C. Wallace Community College. Quite a tribute for a man that the only thing I knew about him growing up was that he was known as a racist. You see, George C. Wallace was the man who in his efforts to be elected in a speech shouted segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. He was also the governor of Alabama, famously the one who stood at the door of Foster Auditorium at the University of Alabama to block entrance of the two African-American students who were to enter, thus breaking down the walls of segregation. And all I've ever known about the man my whole life 
was that he was a racist, and he was a governor, and he was a wildly popular governor in my home state. But then on Tuesday, I found out some things about George C. Wallace that I never knew. I found out that later on in his governorship, he claimed to put his faith in Jesus Christ. He claims to have been born again. And all evidence points to the legitimacy of that claim because he immediately repented of his racism. Later on in life, he said of the incident at the University of Alabama, I was wrong. Those days are over and they ought to be over. In his final term as a governor of the state of Alabama, George C. Wallace made a record number of African American appointments to state positions. He said later, late in his life, that he had chosen to repudiate what he had formerly lived for, which was power and glory, and that because of the gospel, he had chosen to live now for love and for forgiveness. It's quite a story. It's a story that I never knew. Because in our history books, what you're going to learn about George C. Wallace is you're going to learn about his racism. You're also going to learn about his failed attempts at running for President of the United States. But you see, George C. Wallace is a great example from history of how we often treat people from the past. We so often look at people and we oversimplify their lives. We look back at history and we look back at people and we want these nice, neat, simple categories. We want to be able to say about a person, that's a good guy or that's a bad guy. And we want it simple like that. That's a hero or that's a villain. The problem with this desire is that human life is always more complex than that. There's always going to be bad mixed with the good. There's always going to be inconsistency. There's always going to be a complex mixture of virtue with moral failure. There's always going to be examples of courage and examples of cowardice. There's always going to be progression or digression, and there's simply no exceptions to that. I think remembering this complexity, remembering and discouraging this oversimplification is a good practice for us. Because it's going to help us make sense out of our Bibles. We read in our Bibles and we realize pretty quickly that there's not a whole lot of pure heroes. In fact, that seems to be the point the Bible's making. Over and over again, we are introduced to new people. Here is Adam, and then Adam fails. Here is Noah, and then Noah fails. Here is Abram, and then Abram fails. Here is David, and then David fails. From our unique vantage point in history, we are able to know now that ultimately there is only one perfect hero and his name is Jesus Christ every other hero falls short 
Every other hero is this complex mixture of good and bad. So we continue our journey through the book of Genesis. And here we are on the life of Abram. Later to be known as Abraham. When we read our New Testaments, we know that Abraham is an important figure. The New Testament calls Abraham the man of faith. It refers to Abraham as the father of the faithful. And these things are true. Abraham, known for his faith. Abraham, the preeminent one who believed in the promises of God. But when we go back and study the life of Abraham, we have to conclude very quickly that Abraham didn't drop in in that condition. Abraham wasn't always faithful. This was a process. Abraham, like you and like me, was a man who had to grow. He was a man who was dependent completely on the grace and favor of God. He was a man who had to be shaped and molded into the father of the nations. And I want that to encourage you tonight. I want that to encourage you tonight because I know that some of you are looking at your progress in the Christian faith and you grow discouraged. And I want you to hear me tonight that by the grace of God, God is not finished with you yet. He's still working on you. And He is in the habit of taking broken vessels, clay pots, and shaping them into something glorious. And that's good news. As we enter into Genesis chapter 12, we enter into a world in rebellion. A world very much like ours. God had created this world. Everything that this world needed, God had given it. And yet, this world had rebelled. But in the midst of that rebellion, we are introduced to a God who not only created, but a God who says, I am not going to turn my back on the world that I have made. I have decided that I am going to redeem this world. And so he made a promise. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 the very first gospel promise in the Bible. God said to the serpent, I am going to make a seed of the woman who will crush your head. And we keep reading and we don't really know what that means. It seems so vague at that point. What does this mean? What is God doing? And so we keep going and we realize that as revelation continues, as time goes on, God is giving us more and more detail about that promise. And so here we are in Genesis 12 and we we need to connect the dots that what God is doing with Abraham here in Genesis chapter 12 as God has now made a covenant with Abraham has everything to do with that promise that He made in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. He chooses Abram. And he chooses Abram not based on any righteousness that Abram had. We learn later on in the book of Joshua, in fact, that Abram as a man 
was from a family of idolaters, that Abram was an idolater. God did not look at Abram as someone special, as someone uniquely qualified to be the carrier of the promise. He was qualified to be the carrier of the promise based on the election of God alone. And in the process, we see the story of a man that God determines to use. And we're able to see the process. We're able to see how God takes an idolater and turns him into the father of many nations. And it's an amazing story. How God takes a sinner, a normal sinner like you and I, and turns him into a man known for his faith. And so tonight, we are going to look at the ingredients of how faith grows through the life of Abraham. How faith grows. And the first thing that I want you to see in verses 10 through 12 is that faith grows through trials providentially ordained. Trials providentially ordained. Look with me at verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now I want to remind you of what just happened at the beginning of Genesis chapter 12. God had just come to Abram and made the promise. What was the promise? Well, God had promised Abram Three things that he was going to give Abram land, the promised land. He had also promised him that he was going to make him into a great nation. Abram, you're going to be blessed. You are going to become a great nation. You're going to have children and your children are going to grow up to become this mighty nation. But don't let me stop there. Through that nation all the families on the earth are going to be blessed. And so here we are. And then God went and showed him the land of Canaan. Here's the land I'm going to give you. Look at it. This is the land. This is the land of promise. And the very next word we get in verse 10 is that now there was a famine in the land. Immediately, God gives and it seems as if He immediately takes. Here's the land that I'm going to give you, Abram. Oh, you need to leave the land because there's a famine. You're not going to be able to live on this land. Immediately, the promise looks doubtful. I want to remind you that we have already learned in Genesis that something else has a famine as well. That there's also something else that's barren. And that is the wife of Abram, Sarai's womb. You remember the other part of the promise? You're going to be a great nation, and through the great nation, all the families on the earth are going to be blessed. How is that part of the promise going to come true when the wife of Abram is unable to conceive and have a child? Everything that God has promised immediately looks doubtful. Everything. God makes a promise, and then God providentially ordains that all of the circumstances in Abram's life seem inconsistent with the promise that He has just made him. 
And so what did they have to do? Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. They go to Egypt, this wealthy nation, in an effort to survive, in an effort to get food, to get what they need to live. And the trial here gets even worse if you look at verses 11 and 12. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Now, Abram's probably pretty wise at this point to notice this. He looks at his wife and he goes, you know, I don't have a whole lot going for me. I definitely married out of my range. And I'm looking over and, and honey, you're just very attractive. I mean, this is a good thing, a good observation. And he realizes that he's about to enter into this powerful nation and he is going to cast himself on the mercy of this powerful king with nothing to offer in return. And so he realizes that what's probably going to happen is this king, this pharaoh of Egypt, is going to look on me, is going to look at my situation, he's going to see that I have nothing to give him for his kindness, and he's going to see my good-looking wife. And he's going to want her. This trial doesn't seem like it could get any worse. This is a dilemma. This is a dilemma. This is a difficult situation for the man who has just inherited the promises and covenant of God. What a test. Why is God doing this? You know, it just doesn't seem like this would be a good way to get someone acclimated to a new way of life. I mean, he's called him out of idolatry. He's given him this promise. God obviously has a plan for Abram. Why in the world does he immediately take everything away from him? Why in the world does he cast him into this context of trial and trouble? And I think that the answer should be pretty self-evident for us as readers of the Bible. And that is that God knows that faith does not grow when times are easy. Faith doesn't grow when times are easy. It's so easy to say, I trust God when everything in my life is exactly as I would want it to be. That's so easy to say. Of course I trust God. I've got everything I need. God knows that if He is going to turn Abram into Abraham, into the father of the multitude of nations, that He is going to have to test him. That He is going to have to put trials in His path. And that the only way that Abraham is going to grow into the man of faith is if he goes through these trials trusting in God alone. And at the end of the day, you and I know that God's ultimate goal is to be glorified. To be exalted. And how is God exalted? Well, God is exalted when His people trust Him. 
When His people say, Lord, we are not trusting in presidential elections. Lord, we are not trusting in the number in our bank account. Lord, we are not trusting in our circumstances being hunky-dory. We are trusting in You and we will trust You whether times are easy or whether times are difficult. So this is testing ground. I had the uh, privilege this past weekend to take my family up to Great Wolf Lodge up near uh, Cincinnati, and uh, we, you know, we're having fun, and, and we're we're climbing the, these high stairs. We're about to go down the 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 water coaster slide. I mean, it's the the funnest slide they have. You know, there's rules for this one, and so we get up to the top, and and one of my children, you know. It, it, he kind of looks scared, you know, so we go and we sit down in the raft and, and I'm there, I'm right behind him and he's right in front of me and the guy who's, who's operating the slide tells him to put his feet up and he just looks at him and says, no. And I'm behind him and there's all these people in line looking at us and I'm saying, son, put your feet up. And he looks at me, and he says, no. And I said, okay. And so I said, get up right now. And he got up, and the walk of shame down the stairs to the bottom. And at that moment, I had a choice as a father. I had a choice between giving in to my son's fear and letting him not go down the slide or making him go down that slide and I got real close to him and I said I want you to listen to me very carefully you're either going to go up those stairs and go down that slide or you're going to go sit down in a chair and you're not going to move for the rest of this weekend and you know what he said the slide and so we went up that slide and my son trusted me. He did it. And when we got down to the bottom, you know what he said? He said, Dad, that was fun. And he did it again and again and again and again. He grew in his trust for me because he had to face something that was a trial, something that he was afraid of. And when he got to the end, he realized that what I had told him was true. That's how it works with God. Is Abraham going to trust the Lord when everything in his life looks as if nothing God has promised him is going to come true? And we know when we read our New Testaments how this works. Peter talks about this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Peter says this. He, he's, talking, he's just gotten through talking about the living hope that God has blessed the, the, the new covenant people of God with. To be born again. And he says, in this you rejoice what God has done. You rejoice in this. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You're rejoicing in your hope as a born-again 
believer in Jesus Christ, even though right now you are enduring trials, various trials. Why are you enduring those trials? Listen to how he finishes. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is only when your faith gets tested that you have the opportunity for your faith to be proven genuine and tested. And what does it result in? It results in praise and glory and honor. Not of you, but of the One that you are trusting in on the last day. Similarly, James. James chapter 1. He begins his epistle with these words. Count it all joy. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That sounds crazy, James. What are you talking about? Who in their right mind would rejoice over trials? Well, people who understand this will rejoice over trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God has made promises to you, and God has a goal for you, and God is not going to stop until He reaches the goal that He has set for you. And that goal is that you would be perfect and complete conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. The only way to get from where you are now to where God wants you to be conformed into the image of Christ is to go through trials. There's no shortcut to this. You can't skip it. There's no plan B. The cross of Christ itself teaches us that. Jesus Himself did not taste glory until He endured the cross. And then He turns to you and I and He says, the pathway is the same for you. If anyone wants to come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. God makes these wonderful promises to us. But have you ever noticed how rarely your circumstances match up with the promises that He has made? God says Jesus is reigning. He is on His throne. And then you just get out your newspaper. God wants you to believe what He has promised based on His Word. This is purposeful. God does not want us to trust in our circumstances. He wants us to trust in Him alone. And trials provide the context where all of those false securities, all of those things that we falsely trust in, get swept away. Because when we enter into a trial, we are forced to abandon Him or to cling to Him and to Him alone. And so we got to ask ourselves a question, Christians. And the question is, what do you really want? If you could choose, if you could have your life however you wanted your life to be, 
what would you choose? Would you choose a life of comfort and ease, a life where you could have all of your heart's desires? Or would you choose a life where you grow to the point where you trust God in everything? You can't have both. You can't have both. Those are mutually exclusive options. Sometimes I think that when we look out at the world and we, we, we despair, we see, it seems like there's shallow faith all around us. And, and maybe even you're looking into your own heart and you're like, why, why do I trust God so little? And perhaps the reason why faith seems so shallow is because we spend so much of our time trying to insulate ourselves from trials. If I could just have everything convenient, if I could just have everything easy, if I could just have everything the way I like it, there's a consequence to living like that. God knows that. And that's why God is orchestrating these trials in the life of Abram. But I want you to notice that Abram fails the test. (laughs) That's the surprising part. Here's the supposed hero, and as we keep going, we are going to realize that God has tested him. And Abram falls flat on his face. And that's the second thing that I want you to see in this text, and that is mistakes patiently endured. Verses 13 through 16. Mistakes patiently endured. I want want you to remember that at this point in the life of Abram, it was just probably a few weeks ago, maybe even a few days ago, that Abram was sojourning without any relational knowledge of the covenant God. That Abram a few days ago was an idolatrous moon worshiper. And God has just come to him. God has just revealed Himself to Abram. He has just called Abram out And he has made the promise. And Abram believed the promise, but Abram is still growing in his relationship with the covenant-making God. He has received the promise of God by faith, but he still thinks like an idolater. We might could even say at this point that Abram has been justified by faith. But he's not yet been sanctified. So this is where we find him. What is Abram going to do in this tricky situation? Look at verse 13. He says to his wife, Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life might be spared, may be spared for your sake. So here's what we're going to do, wife. You're really beautiful. And if they know that we're married, well, they'll probably just kill me. And by the way, at the end of the day, it wouldn't be good for you if I died. Right? You see the subtlety here? How he turns it? Look at verse 13 again. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. This is about you, honey. 
This is about you. I'm really looking out for you. So Abram is going to lie and say that Sarai is his sister so that the Pharaoh will take her and leave him alone. Self-preservation at his wife's expense. And he gets exactly what he's asking for. Verses 14 through 16, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. This is beauty is an objectively quantifiable thing. Abram knew she was beautiful. She gets into Egypt. Everybody else thinks she's beautiful. This is exactly what he thought would happen. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. Hey, Pharaoh, have you seen that Sarai? Abram's sister. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. That's not good. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And Abram even profits off of this arrangement. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So she goes into Pharaoh's house. Now, the text is not going to spell out for us what all is going on, but you can use your imagination to figure that out. Pharaoh has taken what he thinks to be Abram's sister into his house because she is beautiful to be his wife, his companion. All the while, Abram is going to benefit from this arrangement. He's dealt well with, he gets all types of good things. Livestock. Servants. And there's really no way to clean this story up. I I mean, I don't even know why we would try, but a lot of commentators have. But this shouldn't even surprise us. Abram is a sinner. If you want the people that God uses to be flawless you got to find a different book than the Bible. In fact, you probably got to disqualify yourself. I know you do. At this point, Abram is a very selfish person. A good man doesn't sacrifice his wife for his own survival. And that's exactly what he's doing. He is selfish. He is a failure as a leader. And yet this is the man that God has chosen through this man to save the world. Who else is he going to choose at this point? Genesis chapter 6, God decides that He is going to wipe out the whole entire earth with the flood because He realizes that every intention of the thoughts of man is always evil continuously. Noah seemed like a pretty righteous guy. And we find him drunk and naked in a tent. All of our heroes in the book of Genesis so far have disqualified themselves in one way or another. And yet God keeps working with them. He keeps making promises to them. He doesn't give up on this agenda 
of creating a world with people in it that are going to be His people that He's going to have a relationship with. He decides that He's not going to give up on that plan. Why? Because even in the evil, even in the wickedness of our sin, God is so big that He takes our mistakes And He uses our sin to set the stage for Him to reveal realities about Himself that you and I would have never been able to see otherwise. God is kind. God is patient. God is a God full of grace, full of mercy, full of love. And even as we rebel against Him, God says, I am not going to let your rebellion outdo my love. And I'm going to use your rebellion. I'm going to use your sin. I'm going to use your selfishness to set the stage so that I can come in and show you just how patient I will be with you. Just how kind I will be with you. Just how much I can love someone who hates me. And that's what He's doing with Abram. And that's what He wants to do with you and me. I wonder, as you come into church this evening, I wonder if your theology is big enough to handle a God who uses ridiculously messed up people. I wonder if your theology is big enough To handle the reality that sometimes Christians act in ways that contradict the very gospel that they profess. That's the truth. How many times have you been proven wrong? I can tell you right now that I've been proven wrong a lot of times by people. I've seen people repent and put their faith in Jesus, and I've seen some of those people return back to the world and. I think because of that, sometimes I get kind of skeptical. Kind of the big brother in the, in the prodigal son parable. And you see someone come to faith in Jesus and I'm rejoicing, but in the back of my mind, there's this, this little hint that I just know it's a matter of time before they're probably back. And isn't it a glorious reality when God shows you that you're wrong? That God shows you that He is bigger than that. That God shows you that even when people mess up, even when people do ridiculously selfish things, He is not finished with them. He says to us, don't doubt me. He says, don't measure me in terms of probability. He says, don't don't look at my work and, and think that you can analyze it. And determine whether or not in your own wisdom it's going to work out or not. God says, I take the impossible situations and I turn them around and use them for my glory. I take the most messed up people and I transform them and make them into something beautiful. As you look out at the world, as you think about the people you know, as you think about the people who are so messed up, they seem like they are the least likely people that could ever come to Jesus. Don't you know that those are the very people God uses? 
Isn't that your story? Where would you be if it weren't for a God who uses wickedly selfish, messed up people? I can assure you, you would not be in a church listening to a sermon on a Sunday night in February. And yet, here you are. And finally, in this text, I also want you to see another ingredient to how faith grows. Promises stubbornly kept. Look with me at verses 17 through 20. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. You see that? Not only does God not turn His back on Abram and Sarai for their sin, but He continues to work redemptively for their good. He continues to actively pursue the promise that He made. God knows that He has bound up His promise in the fate of this man and his wife, and God says, I am so committed to keeping my promise that I am going to continue to work for their good. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why didn't you just tell me that? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So the end result is what? Well, the promise of God is maintained. He's committed to Abram. Abram has made a, a mess of the situation and God has come in and rescued him. God has taken the mess that Abram has made and he has not given up on him. He is still working even in the midst of his mistakes to bring about good for him, to bring about the completion, the fulfillment of the promise that he has made him. Even your mistakes are being used by the all-powerful God to accomplish the good that God intends for you. If you are a child of God by faith in Jesus Christ, what does the Bible say? Romans chapter 8. Verse 28, all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. All things means all things, even when you mess up. In no way is this excusing what Abram did. What Abram did was sinful. What Abram did was reprehensible. But what this shows us is that your sin will never outdo God's commitment to His promises on your behalf. He uses your mess-ups to bless you. Do you ever look back on your journey thus far? Do you ever just look back on your journey as a Christian and wonder at the reality that you're still even here? That God has persevered in preserving you 
through all kinds of mistakes. All kinds of terrible thoughts. All kinds of selfish actions. All sorts of outbursts of pride and anger and lust and seasons of prayerlessness where you weren't even trusting Him. And yet here you are. And not only did He patiently endure all of those seasons and all of those actions and all of those thoughts and all of those times, but all of the while, He never stopped working for your good in Christ Jesus. Even your rebellious acts were part of His plan to conform you into the image of His Son. This is the way growth works. This is the way sanctification works in a sinful world. God providentially ordains trials. And sometimes you're going to fail. And when you fail, if you're a child of promise, if you are a believer in the Gospel of Jesus Christ, He is going to patiently endure your failures. And the reason why He patiently endures our failures is so that He can continue to show us how doggedly, stubbornly committed He is to keeping His promises to us. So that He can continue to manifest aspects of His nature, of His love and His patience and His kindness towards us. And you know what the end result of that is going to be? Before long, when those same trials come, instead of failing, we're going to start to remember all the times that He has proven Himself. And in the midst of those difficult trials in our lives, instead of falling back on idolatrous thoughts and acts of self-preservation, we're going to look to Him and say, God, You have proven Yourself over And over and over again, I trust you. And that's what God's doing in our lives. That's the process. Genesis chapter 12 presents us with a pattern. It's a pattern that you're going to find again later on. Did you notice it? God's People are in trouble. God's promise seems threatened. And in this particular episode, what do they do? They go to Egypt. It's really amazing because you, you, you know the story if you're familiar with the rest of the Bible. They go into Egypt and what happens? Well, God's covenant people are taken captive. Sarai is brought into Pharaoh's domain. She is taken captive. And what does God do? God acts to redeem her. And sets the prisoners free. They're redeemed. They leave. They're saved. But we know as we keep reading our Bible that God's promise isn't just for Israel, but God's promise is for all the nations of the earth. And and all of this, both this Exodus story and the big Exodus story that you're most familiar with, where the same exact pattern happens, where Moses leads his people out, all of these episodes are pointing us toward the greatest Exodus story. The day where God acts to redeem all of the captive peoples on the face of the earth who are enslaved to their sin. 
through the blood of Jesus Christ. The new exodus. Where Jesus Christ dies on the cross to set the prisoners free. And leads us out of slavery. That's the story we live by. This is just an echo, a, a, a preview of where, where God is going, what God is doing. You know, we still live in the same world as Abraham. We still face trials all around us, but you and I face those trials even in a better place than Abraham did. We face those trials with better promises because our promises are sealed by the Gospel, the full revelation of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We face those trials with better resources. God has entered into covenant with us. But it's a new covenant. And it's a better covenant. And it's a covenant where He writes His law on our hearts. It's a covenant where everyone who's a member of this covenant is in personal fellowship and communion with God. We get the fulfillment of what Abram only saw in part. And so I'll leave you with this tonight. As you face trials of various kinds, remember that God remains committed to His promises. The cross, the empty tomb, is a reminder of that every single day. And rejoice, rejoice that the testing of your faith is not meant to push you down, it's not meant to discourage you, but the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's pray.